You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Just a reminder of what we're doing right now. Um, This is part of our worship where we hear from God through his word. And I was listening to this podcast from H.B. Charles, and he explained preaching this way. It was very helpful. He said, it's the will of God that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make the people of God look like the Son of God. So that's what we're aiming at, that it's God's will that His Spirit uses His Word to make us look like His Son. So let's pray for that as we jump in today. Spirit, I ask that you would use your words to make us look like Christ. Amen. My name is Michael. If we haven't met... My wife, Heather, and I have been married for 10 years, and we have known each other for around 15, and we're getting to know each other a lot better now. For example, she gave me a really great uh, birthday present. She got me Celtics tickets, which is going to be awesome. Uh, One summer when we were in college, we only got to see each other for one weekend, and it just so happened to be it was her birthday that weekend. So we were 20. We had been dating for like two years. And over the summer, I was working at an internship and living at home so I could save up some money for an engagement ring, and I was going to ask her to marry me in the fall. So this was July. I'm on my way to see her, and I make a very important and a very costly stop. I stop at a jeweler's, and I put down, I pick out a ring, and I put down a deposit. And I leave that store, and I have, like, no money to my name. Uh, But I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm going to ask her to be my wife in the fall. To misuse a business term, I am cash poor. So I leave, and I immediately drive to see Heather, and then I realize two connected things that start to make me nervous. One, Heather doesn't know that I just stopped here, and she thinks I'm only taking this trip to see her on her birthday. The second is, stupidly, I realize I have no birthday present for her, and I also now have no money. So I can't tell her why I don't have a birthday present for her, And um, I can't really have an excuse, because we've been dating for two years, and boyfriends should have presents for their girlfriends, especially if they're driving four hours to see her. So I'm not really sure what to do. And to be honest, it's stories like these that cause people like Jess to ask Heather how I managed to get her to be my wife, which is a fair point, because I've clearly married up. So I'm driving to see her, and then I have this idea. It's not a good idea. And it's not a particularly like, well-thought-out idea, but I am desperate for ideas, and so I have one. I remember something. I remember that my mom had given me something to give to Heather. And I convinced myself, something's better than nothing. My mom sent me with a bag of lotions, a wrinkled brown paper bag full of sample lotions from Avon. In my defense, I was 20, my hippocampus was not fully developed, and I'd already made one really good decision that weekend. So when she got into the car, I handed her the brown paper bag of lotions. (laughs) And I said, happy birthday. (laughs) So in her mind, her dumb boyfriend just drove four hours to give her a wrinkled bag of lotions from his mom. For some reason, she kept me around, and we did get married. Uh, But now she likes to tell people the story about the birthday that I gave her a brown paper bag full of lotions. 
If you had only seen our interactions that weekend, you're, you would not have been sure that I loved her <laughs> or had like strong feelings that this is a long-term viable relationship. But the deep reasons, if you had seen the broader context, the appearance of what was happening then had connections to something deeper that wasn't clear on the surface. If you had followed my money, you would have seen that I loved her. One way of revealing the truth behind our appearances is to look at how we get and spend our money. Not necessarily how we present ourselves, our public persona. Okay, so you might not resonate so much with my inexplicable oversight as a 20-year-old. You've probably had some experience where what you did and how you were perceived were like miles apart. If you've ever seen All the President's Men, which is about the Watergate scandal, or if you lived through the Watergate scandal or know anything about the Watergate scandal, there's famous line, at least in the movie, that's called talking about following the money. And this informant is talking to Bob Woodward, and he says, forget the myths the media has created about the White House. Follow the money. And Bob Woodward says, what do you mean? Where? And he helpfully says, um, you tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll just point you in the right direction if I can. Just follow the money. So this anonymous whistleblower is trying to tell him Forget the appearances of the White House. Forget the way the president and the media, they're presenting themselves. Instead, if you follow the money, you'll find out the truth. Both of those stories are getting at something that I think Jesus is trying to show us in the passage today, which is Jesus evaluates what's hidden in our heart, not our public persona, not what we see on the outside. We can fool one another, but Jesus sees the deep reasons for our behavior. So we're going to be in Luke 20 today. Uh, we're going to jump in at the end of the chapter, verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus speaks to his disciples. So Jesus has just come into Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. He's coming to the temple, and the temple leaders have sent wave after wave of resistance and challenge to him. And as Tim preached last week, he ends that by posing a question about the divine origins of David's son and our need to respond to him as king. So after th saying these things in the temple broadly, he turns and he pivots and talks to his disciples. So if we're paying attention this morning, we can hear what Jesus is saying to us too. This is a warning. So let's make sure we're hearing Jesus in his warning. In verse 46, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogue, and the places of honor at feasts. So Jesus tells his disciples to pay attention. Look around the temple and see the kind of behavior that they are engaging in and avoid it. They are showing from deep in their hearts what their true longings are. The scribes, what do they desire? What do they like doing? They like being seen in nice clothing. So at the time, wearing this long, flowing robe would have highlighted your elite status without you having to tell anybody that you're elite. This is like pulling up to a birthday party in a Lamborghini or arriving with a bodyguard. The robe is a status symbol. It shows status without them having to actually say anything. They belong to the elite, and they like other people knowing that they belong. We can do this too. We can use our clothes, our cars, our homes, our kids' activities, 
our social media, to signal our importance, to satisfy a desire to be recognized, to be approved by others. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller is writing about money, and he says something really interesting. He points out that these things on the surface, that we, the way we use our money, relationships, desire for luxury or experiences, these are surface behaviors, surface idols. But what's driving them, what's driving the way we don't love God and love them more than God is much deeper at the roots of our hearts. And he calls these things deep idols. And he says that there's four. There's power. We want to have influence over others. Or control. Like, I really want to be in control of my life and what happens. Or I crave the approval of others. Or comfort. Like, I just really want to have comfortable or pleasurable experiences. And he's saying that out of these deep idols flow these surface-level activities. And so the scribe's behavior of wanting to be honored, wanting to be first, wanting to be seen as important, these are their surface idols that are flowing from something deeper. All right, so when that went up there, maybe you noticed the Spirit of God pricking you a little bit, seeing, like, why do you want to be seen as important or desired as attractive or... Why do you crave other people's approval? So maybe consider which one of these four might be driving some of your public behavior. Power, control, craving for others' approval, comfort. And ask, what is it that you're not believing about Jesus and the gospel? Like, how are you not believing that Jesus satisfies those deep needs? Are you presenting yourself the way you do because you want to have influence over others? Jesus gave up his power to purchase you for his eternal family. He now has all power over the universe and he's given us his spirit to love God and others. So any influence, any power we have is a gift in order to benefit others and to honor God. God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. And God is glorious. We don't have to grab power to make others feel, fear us. Maybe you present yourself the way you do because you really just want other people to approve of you. Jesus gave up his body, bruised and broken, to die on a cross for you. Because of his death and resurrection, we have the approval of the Father. We are free of the need for other people to approve of the way that we dress, and we can now be free to dress and live and present ourselves to honor Jesus, free of needing to be approved by others. God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves to others. Maybe power and approval isn't the thing that's driving you. Maybe for you it's a deep control in how you're perceived. Like you really need to control the way others perceive you. Jesus gave up his body for you. He was perceived on the cross as a criminal, as a sinner, mocked, abandoned. He gave up control over the end of his life to die, and the Father raised him from the dead. God is great. You don't need to be in control. God is in control. You can rest in Jesus. That's three out of four. The last one is comfort. Maybe none of those are the things for you. Maybe you just really want to use your money to buy clothes, cars, homes, experiences. And there's a deeper enjoyment than having or obtaining these things. They are enjoyable, but that enjoy, enjoyability dwindles and it fades over time. God is the source of all pleasure and enjoyment. 
Psalm 16 tells us that in God's presence is forever, never-ending joy. That mankind's deepest calling and longing is to know God and enjoy him forever. Jesus died to free us from these things and to lift our eyes to a higher enjoyment, a deeper, more lasting pleasure. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. Power, approval, control, comfort. Jesus evaluates what's hidden in our hearts, not the way we present ourselves outwardly. The second thing Jesus points out about the scribes and their behavior that we need to pay attention to is what they love. They love public greetings of honor in the market. They love having the first seats in the synagogue. They love having the first seats at, uh, next to the hosts at dinner. They love being recognized. They love being honored in public. They love having those platforms that give them high public recognition. For them, it's a, it's a competition. And their competitive desire is to be seen, to be perceived as belonging to the elite. Their love is public affirmation, honor in the market, religious settings, socially advancing parties. They want to be first. We could say their deep idols of gaining power and craving the approval of others is driving this behavior. From the deep places of their hearts is flowing this power-seeking and approval craving. And Jesus is warning us to stay away from that kind of behavior. He goes on and he says this in verse 47. Beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So in an agrarian society like ancient Israel, if a woman's husband died and she didn't have sons and she couldn't remarry, she was in a bad spot. And from the law, we see God's long-standing concern that his people live justly toward the widow and the fatherless and immigrants. A really great example of this is a four-chapter book called Ruth. And in there, we have a great example of an Israelite living justly as a redeemer among his people. His name is Boaz. And he sees a young immigrant woman named Ruth. And he goes out of his way to make sure his men protect her. His men provide access for her to work and to provide for herself and her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. And Boaz does this all at his own expense, out of his own potential profits. So instead of living like Boaz, the legal experts are using their position to prey on and devour widows. They were called to be shepherds, but instead they're sharks. It's unclear exactly what they're doing. What is clear is that it's financial injustice that's hurting the widows and benefiting the scribes. They're breaking God's law so that they can be wealthy, have public rec recognition at the cost of the most unprotected and vulnerable. And what's worse is that they're portraying themselves publicly. Their public persona is that they are holy, godly, righteous. They pray these long prayers in the temple. It's as if the length of their prayer, the number of biblical quotations, corresponds to their holiness. But these prayers that they're making are nothing but status symbols. It's the religious version of the robes that they're wearing. It's a pretense. It's a mockery. It's an act. The form is devout and holy, but the inner content is hypocrisy and greed. So we see Jesus is evaluating them not on the way they're presenting themselves in public, not their public persona, but on what's hidden in their heart. This is why Jesus says they will receive an abundant judgment from God. 
God is the eternal king. He's a just judge of everyone. They have used God's law to commit injustice. And they've covered it up and renamed it and presented it as righteousness. They're currently rich. but They are poor towards God. Before others, they are approved. But before God, they are condemned. Their way of living brings great dishonor to God. And God is going to be their judge. And this is also a warning to us from Jesus. Beware of acting like they are acting. The hiddenness of loving other things than God in our hearts, in this case in particular, we're talking about money and power. Like that hiddenness in our hearts of idolatry causes us to hurt others, to dishonor God, and then leads to our own destruction. So in love, Jesus is giving this reminder and this warning because God evaluates us by what is deeply in our hearts, not how we present ourselves publicly to others. The whole law can be summed up, Jesus said, in two things. Do you love God first and foremost, and do you love your neighbor as yourself? The scribes have utterly failed this. They have not loved God first and foremost, and they have clearly not loved their neighbor. They've tarnished God's reputation to increase their own. And the consequence for them is going to be divine judgment, Jesus says. So let's follow Jesus this morning and listen to his warning. Let's beware of the scribes. Avoid living with uh, covering up that hidden idolatry and presenting ourselves as if we are righteous. See, the scribes deceive themselves that their outer persona could somehow fool God because it fools others. They became unjust sharks when God called them to be good shepherds. So what about you? What does your money reveal about your deepest love? Are you a shark or a shepherd with your money? Do you devour money and use others to get it? Or do you use money and get devoured by others so they can benefit? Okay, fourth and fifth graders, I know you have like a piece of paper. If you're taking notes, here's the good thing to write down. Jesus evaluates what's hidden in my heart not my public persona. So that was part one of this passage, and here's part two. So Jesus looked up, saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. So let's imagine that we're in the temple. I know you've never been, but just imagine. Whatever you're imagining is fine. So we're looking at Jesus as he's been teaching and warning us about the scribes. The crowds are big. It's festival weekend. Jesus looks up and you follow his gaze. He stopped talking. He's looking at this long line of people. They all have these long robes on and they're approaching this trumpet-shaped box. And you notice they put something in. And as they put something in, a temple worker is announcing how much they've just donated to the temple. So we can tell by their appearance and how much they've donated that they're wealthy. So imagine we hear them saying out $5,000. Jesus is still not talking. We keep looking at him, waiting for him to speak, and he's fixated on somebody in the back of the line. And it's a woman, and she's not dressed like all the others are. And he watches as she slowly makes her way in the queue, and then she gives her amount in the box, $1.50. And then the people keep going, $7.50, $12,500. Turning back to Jesus, we notice he's looking at us. He's ready to teach us something. And he says this. He says, Truly I tell you, 
this poor widow has put in more than all of them. So he wants us to pay attention. She's in deep poverty. She's alone. She's a widow. He wants us to look at that poor widow. Her gift was way more than everyone else's. How is that possible? Her donation was like financially insignificant compared to everybody else's. Yet Jesus, the king, says that her gift was more significant than all of them combined. What is Jesus' valuation of this gift? How is that possible? He goes on in verse 4. He says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. While the scribes are going to be judged abundantly, these wealthy are donating out of their abundance. They're giving from their leftovers, we could say, from what they can afford to give away to honor God. The widow is giving out of what she cannot afford. It's coming out of her living necessities. The comparison by Jesus is a sort of ratio, the ratio of living cost to giving. Jesus is pointing out to us that her ratio is closer to one-to-one, which is astounding faith in God. Sometimes we can struggle to give one out of ten dollars to support God's mission and worship, but she's giving from her deficit, not from an abundant abundance, but from a, a lack. She's giving in a way that's the exact opposite of the wealthy. She still gives to honor God, even though her situation is desperate. And Jesus wants us to focus in on her, not her as a victim of the scribes. He wants us to see her in particular, not in the abstract. Because Jesus is looking at her, this poor widow whose poverty wasn't an obstacle for her. It wasn't a barrier to honoring God. She is giving literally from her life. Can you see her? Jesus did. And he wants us to see that she gave what she had to live on to God as an act of worship. He wants us to beware of the scribes and to look at the widow. The scribes' wealth and competition for honor was a barrier to faith in living justly. The widow's poverty is not a barrier to faith and generosity. So beware of the scribes and look at the widow. And here's why. Because Jesus evaluates what's hidden in our hearts, not our public persona. Jesus says that her gift is more than everybody else's because of what it revealed about her. She is rich in faith towards God. Because she believes in God deeply, she is free to give to God deeply. The scribes do not believe in God deeply. They look like they have faith, but their constant self-promotion and grabbing after wealth show that they're driven by fear, unbelief. The widow is not anxious about her next meal or her clothing. The scribe's activity is aiming at being seen and wearing nice clothing, having the best seats at meals. She is seeking God's honor first, trusting him to provide all that she needs when she needs it, like he does for the birds and the flowers, Jesus tells us. The scribes are seeking out their own honor first. They're using God to live in luxury at the expense of the poor. Jesus does not judge by appearances. We are fooled by them, but Jesus is not. Because he evaluates what's hidden in our heart, not our public persona. So what does the way that you are handling your money reveal about what's hidden deep in your heart? Are we generous out of our abundance, out of what we can afford to give? 
Do you know what the percentage of your giving is compared to like your monthly or annual income? Not the amount, but like the ratio. Because for some of us, giving 10% is incredible faith. And for others of us, giving 10% doesn't impact us at all. It's coming out of our abundance. When I was 20, if you had access to my bank account, you would have been able to say that I loved Heather, despite appearances to the contrary. As Mumford and Son said, where you invest your love, you invest your life. If we followed your money, what would it reveal about you? Show me where a man spends his time and money, and I'll show you his God, Martin Luther tells us. The widow's money, if we followed her money trail, it would show that she loves God. She has faith in God. And Jesus wants us to see her and to beware of the scribes. Jesus also knows that we're powerless to change our deep-rooted idolatry by ourselves. That's why he left the eternal riches of heaven, to become poor as a man, God's king, with nowhere to lay his head. He joined us in a body to bring in God's kingdom and freedom for the rich and the poor. In his kingdom, the poor and the rich are on equal footing, and both receive good news, full forgiveness, new life, new hearts, a new family who live by a new economy together. Jesus received injustice in his own body so that we can be free to live justly. Jesus frees us from loving money and using people so we can use money to love people. He frees us from craving the approval of others, from competing against one another for honor. We have the approval of the Father, and now the competition we have is on outdoing one another and giving each other honor. So as we close, let's remember and consider something. Because Jesus evaluates what's hidden in our hearts, not our public persona, what does the way that you present yourself reveal about your heart's hidden loves and desires? In the gospel of Jesus, we find freedom and power to change and to be freed of our deepest idols and sins so that we can live like Jesus. So let's be aware of living like the scribes and make sure that we're seeing the widow. When we're slaves to money, when we're competing with one another for honor, we overlook and take advantage of one another, especially those who are in the most desperate and vulnerable positions. So instead, let's be a people who follow Jesus. Imagine what it looked like if we all lived generously, if we opened our homes and our lives to welcome others in at our own expense, the way Boaz did, the way Jesus has welcomed us in at the expense of his own body and blood. He did this, he did this for us, so now we can open our hands to others. Let's live generously because Jesus has been generous with us. Let's live sacrificially because Jesus was sacrificed for us. Let's pray.